Welcome, Clan Line listeners. This week on the History Show, I have a very interesting programme for you. I was up in Dublin for the Dublin Festival of History. It's actually its fourth year running, and it was my first time up there. But it's fascinating. It's run by uh, Dublin Libraries and City, Dublin City Council. And what they do is, for over two weeks, they have a series of lectures throughout the city of Dublin, um, and, and an eclectic range of material and lectures. But their uh, opening event and marquee event, actually, is held in Dublin Castle in the first weekend. Most of the events are in the print works. And what the organisers do is they invite world-renowned writers and lecturers uh, to give a series of lectures in the print works. And that's where I caught up with Brendan Teeling, the organiser of the whole event. So the opening interview here is with Brendan, and Brendan himself um, is a city librarian, and he came up with this idea a few years back. In this interview, he's going to tell you a little bit about it and a little bit about the festival itself. Now, as I'm sitting in the beautiful auditorium uh, that is Printworks in Dublin Castle, I am very fortunate to be sitting here with the founding father of the Dublin Festival of History, Brennan Teeling. Brennan, thank you t- for taking time out to talk to me. Hello, it's a pleasure. Yeah, glad you co- glad you came all the way from Cork to, to be here with us. It's worth it. I'm actually after seeing a few lectures already. I'm, I must say it's fantastic. Brennan, when did all this begin? Well, this is our fourth year, so I suppose it started about five years ago. Um, we, I mean, I'd had this idea of a festival of history for uh, many years. I just thought it would be a great idea, and nobody seemed to be doing it. And uh, just through a quirk, uh, accidentally, I came back to work for Dublin City Council. I worked somewhere else. I came back into the Dublin City Council. And just a chance conversation, uh, somebody said, we might have a few bob, you know, not a huge, but a few bob next year. Have you any ideas? I said, I have an idea <laughs> in my back pocket here, which I took out. And uh, I managed to get a good team around me, uh, Tara Doyle, who, who, who works on the festival almost full time. And uh, we started working with Bert Wright, who's a, a sort of a programming, you know, literary programming person. Put a team together and yeah, this is their fourth year now and it's, it's, it's gone from strength to strength. Yeah. That's amazing, Brendan. And you said uh, you, you started four years ago. So what were you doing before that? What's your, what's your own background? Well, I'm a librarian and I worked in an organisation called Encorla Laurelana. We were a national library support agency and during the uh, following the crash <laughs> we were the Encorla Laurelana was disbanded was, was abolished and the staff were moved around various places and I was fortunate to get moved back to Dublin City Council where I had worked previously uh, as the deputy city librarian which I was delighted to do I have to say and uh, so uh, in the city libraries obviously no more than in uh, Cork City Cork County all the libraries around the place uh, one of our key strengths is local studies and collecting uh, material that's uh, about the, the history of the areas we're in. But also in Dublin, we, we have a, a policy of collecting anything to do with the history of Ireland. Um, uh, and that would be both manuscripts and maps and photographs, all those sorts of things, but also books. So uh, a key part of what we do, therefore, is to say to people, look, you know, we have all of this stuff and, you know, we want you to come in and use it. It's all free. Uh, and really, this, is, this festival of history is an extension of that. So in the way that we have a lot of literary stuff, we have writers, you know, fiction writers coming in and talking about their books. We thought, well, why not have, a, why not have a, a history festival with historians talking about their books? I'd love to have a science one, have science writers talking about their books. You know, there's so much out there that you could do. Um, but because, I suppose, history is one of our strengths and the city libraries is, is something we're focusing on. 
course history is in, in a renaissance period in Ireland at the moment there's uh, such a new audience uh, exploring it but you were always into history you studied it yourself and uh, you actually did a, a little bit of what I'm doing today you might tell us a bit about that <laughs> well I did, I did history in my, my primary degree uh, I went back some years later and did a, a master's in local studies in Maynooth with uh, Professor Raymond Gillespie who's uh, one of the heroes of, of Irish local studies and um, uh, alongside that, as it were, as a hobby, I was involved in community radio, and I did a, a, a program called, very pompously called the Dublin History Review. <laughs> I wasn't short of ambition. <laughs> well, look where you've got today. You've come a long way, I have to say, Brendan. And what would you say some of the highlights of, of this uh, weekend, or even the next uh, two weeks? What would you pick out for our listeners? Well, um, one of them, which I think would be really fantastic, unfortunately it's booked out, it's in, it's in one of our libraries, in Rohini Library, and we have a chap called Ted Jones. Ted is in his, his mid-90s, and Ted flew uh, flying boats uh, across the uh, North Sea and the Baltic, across to northern Russia, uh, dropping supplies uh, during the, at the end of the Second World War. Um, and when uh, you, you hear, uh, obviously, a lot about the First World War now, and, of course, uh, there is nobody surviving now from that, but um, you have people still alive who fought in the First World War, and uh, Ted lives out in Clontarf in North Dublin, and he's going to be talking with uh, Commandant Stephen McGowan from the, the Defence Force, from Military Archives, about his exploits uh, in the Second World War. I think that's going to be great. It's a real living history, a real way for people now to connect right back in a personal way with somebody who was central to the events that we'll be talking about, you know, today. You know, we're going to have... Um, so another one today uh, is... Uh, the next one up, in fact, is Saul David, and he's going to be talking with the raid on Entebbe. Now, that was in 1972. And people who are my age and they're you know, in the 50s will remember it. Uh, seeing it on the news uh, when uh, terrorists took, uh, hijacked a plane and landed in Entebbe in Uganda and it was all tied up with Idi Amin as well and the Bad Amin have gang, all this sort of stuff. And um, all of a sudden it seems to me <laughs> it's time to write history books about it. And Saul Davis is a fantastic book, it is really, really riveting. Uh, it's like a, th- a thriller, you know, and I'm really looking forward to that. And also, Roger Morehouse will be following on it from him, talking about the. Uh, well, we, ha- we have musical accompaniment now, uh, talking about the Nazi Soviet Pact, a key factor in how World War II panned out. And people in Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Baltic states, they're all living with the fallout of the Nazi Soviet Pact after all of these years. So they hear, and when you have see what's happening in Russia now was sort of a rise in, 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 over the past decade or so in Russian nationalism. Um, you even have some, some people in Russia almost trying to deny that it happened. And yet, uh, yesterday, um, back in 1940, um, there was a parade uh, in uh, Poland, a joint military parade between the Nazis and the Soviets marking there what effectively was their dismemberment of, of Poland really you know so I'm really looking forward to Roger Moore House but look it's, it's there's so many highlights you know it's, it's, uh, we have a great one on uh, the Hillsborough tragedy much more recent history um, because uh, we are trying to look at the history of, of sport we had a, a session last night in the founding of the GAA and uh, this one this evening with uh, Paul um, Russell Carroll Kelly's uh, creator and uh, two writers, one of whom is a survivor of Hillsborough himself. Uh, they both have books out this year and uh, I think that's going to be fascinating. Even for people who aren't interested in sport, I think it's, 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 a, very, it's a fascinating story about how uh, tragedies which happen unfold in the public gaze. 
it still took so long for the actual truth to emerge from that. And I think that's that's going to be fascinating. Yeah. So it's an eclectic, wide-ranging, uh, diverse program you have, Brendan. You should be very proud. Um, is there any chance of this spreading to Cork or, or other counties for that matter? Is, can you have any influence on the, on the libraries down south? <laughs> well, I, I know, I know uh, library colleagues from, from Cork City and Cork County and uh, we've always gone very well. But I suppose, look, we work for Dublin City Council and that's where, who we're charged to, uh, to, to work with. But I could see, for example, that uh, we, we, you might have something like satellite events, no, no problem, that um, you, know, you could have in association with. You know, if we're bringing somebody over from the UK... You know, in many cases, they would be quite happy to travel down to Cork as well as come to Dublin while they're here. You know, fly back from Cork. So I can see potential there. Yeah, yeah. We're always open to we're always open to cooperation. But hopefully, you weren't open to that much cooperation. Nineteen sixteen rise, and all we ever hear of what happened in Dublin. What happened to the Cork guys? So maybe this time we, we'll get we'll get influenced by you and, and work in it. I won't keep you much longer, Brendan, because the next guest is about to come in. Uh, thanks a million. It was lovely speaking with you. Oh, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. And the, I say the lights that you come up from Cork for this is uh, is great. So I hope you enjoy the rest of the, the rest of the festival. Thank you, and I hope the clan line wrestlers will get a kick out of this as well. And if Emro are listening, we'll pay for that tune in the back, don't worry. Thanks very much. Between lectures, I caught up with uh, one member of the audience who was really enthusiastic about what she was seeing. She'd been to it for uh, the last few years. So in this interview, Monica from Dublin is going to tell you what she thinks about the Dublin Festival of History. So listeners, I'm here actually in the Printworks in Dublin Castle, attending the festival. And I've decided to speak to a few people who've been attending the festival. I've sitting here next to me, a pure Dublin woman, Monica. How are you doing, Monica? I'm doing very well, Kieran. And we're sitting down now, looking forward to the next lecture. Monica, why are you here? Well, I'm here because this is a fantastic uh, festival, history festival. It's free. They have wonderful events, wonderful lectures, wonderful people involved in the festival. And... I just think it's a great facility to have for Dublin and for anyone who's interested in history and can literally just come, attend. They can spend a whole weekend here. But besides the Dublin part of it in the Dublin Castle, there are library lectures all week, there are films, and everything is free. It's just fantastic. So getting back to the actual lecturers... It's amazing what a mic in your hand can do for you, what doorways it can open. Um, uh, when I met uh, the organisers, they were very kind to allow me access to some of the lecturers. And I caught up with Robert Garwood, who's a professor of modern history in UCD and director of its Centre for War Studies. Robert uh, has just released a book called The Vanquished, Why the First World War Failed to End 1917 to 1923. And he lectured on that actual book at the festival. Afterwards, Robert spoke to me a bit about his book. Hope you enjoy this one. Hello, Clonline Radio listeners. Uh, I'm still up here at the uh, Dublin Festival for History, and I'm delighted to have in front of me uh, Robert Gerwith, Professor of Modern History at UCD, who has recently written a book, The Vanquished, Why the First World War Failed to End in 1917 to 1923. Robert, thank you for coming and meeting me today. How are you keeping? Not too bad, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Robert, I suppose the first thing our audience will want to know about your book is um, you, you, you say why the World War failed in 1917 to 23. Why those years? 
Well, 1917 is, of course, the, the year of the two Russian revolutions, which um, actually transformed the conflict in, in many ways. First of all, uh, Russia exits the First World War shortly thereafter. And secondly, the Bolshevik Revolution, the second Russian Revolution of 1917, injects a very powerful uh, ideology into the conflict. So uh, the uh, socialist workers uh, ar across Europe are, of course, delighted uh, with the fact that um, Bolshevism has triumphed in Russia, that the uh, autocratic regime uh, had been overthrown, and they see it as a sort of beacon of hope. Whereas, on the other hand, uh, people who uh, despised socialism, conservatives, middle classes, uh, saw it as extremely alarming that um, communism had become uh, had, had triumphed in, uh, in Russia and they saw it as a real danger for uh, the rest of Europe. Uh, 1923, the end date of, uh, of my book, is the year of the, the Treaty of Lausanne, which is in many ways the last of the um, Paris peace treaties that ended the First World War. And it's important because uh, it ends fighting in the East. So between 1917 and 23, in large parts of Europe, uh, there is a continuation of fighting, which uh, actually um, leads to more than 4 million deaths, which is a, a, a very uh, significant uh, number, obviously. And uh, the, the Treaty of Lausanne uh, ends these conflicts. And it also uh, means that one of the principal losers of the First World War, namely the Ottoman Empire, emerges as a victor because they uh, managed to repel uh, a Greek invasion in the so-called Greco-Turkish War uh, that um, uh, results in the defeat of the Greek invasion troops in 1923. So do you think the dismantling of these empires has actually became a dangerous thing and that the rise of nationalism actually ended up, instead of being something to glorify and be proud of, uh, increased uh, society, danger for societies and the peoples that lived within those societies? To a certain extent, yes. I mean, over the, say, eight decades after 1918, uh, we've gotten accustomed to the idea that um, democracy triumphed in 1918 and that the formerly uh, autocratic uh, empires that suppressed minorities um, uh, were finally uh, dissolved. And there are some problems with that narrative. Um, if you look at the, the recent uh, literature on, say, for example, the Habsburg Empire or Imperial Germany prior to 1914, um, a lot of... Uh, Classic opinions have been revised and people are now much kinder, if you like, um, about these empires, which had many problems. But uh, the positive thing about them was that they had um, long-standing expertise in, particularly the Habsburg Empire, long-standing uh, expertise in managing difference. The new um, exclusive nationalism that became dominant after 1918 in, in large parts of, of Central Europe uh, meant that certain ethnicities were privileged uh, over others. And what these ethnicities aspired to was a, an exclusive um, and, and homogenous nation state. And uh, that became a recurrent theme then during Europe's mid-20th century when uh, many states, particularly after the demise of democracy, tried to get rid of their uh, ethnic minorities. 
And uh, I know that this uh, isn't Ireland, it doesn't feature in, in that period in your book, but would you say uh, the same kind of thing was happening when the Republic, or the Free State it was, started their own state? Did they suppress the uh, minority or in favour of, of a more Gaelic Irish Ireland? Well, there were, of course, the minority treaties, which were actually applied to uh, all of the successor states. Um, what is interesting, I think, about the Irish case is it, that it's the one uh, Western uh, European example that, in terms of the Civil War, the War of Independence, seems to follow a broader uh, Central and Eastern European trend. Um, what is noticeable, however, is that the um, the Irish uh, War of Independence and indeed the Civil War, um, horrific as they were, uh, were a lot less violent um, when we compare it with you know, Russia, uh, a civil war where more than three million people are killed. And uh, it's, a big, it's a big puzzle why that may have been the case. Um, uh, some historians have suggested that the Irish Revolution and the, uh, the Irish Civil War were somewhat more benign than the Russian Civil War, the Finnish Civil War, which kills off 1% of the population within three months, is that the land question was largely resolved at the time. Um, whereas in Eastern Europe, uh, the land question is quite central. Uh, who owns the land? And uh, repossession uh, is a central theme both in the socialist revolutions and also in the nationalist revolutions. Um, but yes, of course, the, the spirit of the time is very much to uh, create a uh, religiously, ethnically homogenous uh, nation, um, which, of course, can only be established if you marginalise certain minorities. And of course, perhaps, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong in this, Robert, maybe the difference was that there was a certain amount of connection still between Ireland and the British Emirate, the, f uh, the fact that they were in the Commonwealth, whereas Eastern European countries, they generally totally broke from their previous empires. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a major difference. I mean, uh, complete secession is the uh, ultimate objective of nationalist groups. What is interesting, though, is that these um, movements, at least in East Central Europe, movements that demanded complete independence, had been operating on the margins of politics all the way uh, into the First World War. The breakup of the land empires was not an allied war aim until early 1918, uh, which is quite remarkable because um, we've gotten so used to the idea that these empires were in decline and that uh, large segments of the population um, demanded independence long before um, 1914, and that the First World War uh, only brought uh, the, the, these trends and developments to their logical conclusion. Uh, but nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, up until, um, as I say, early 1918, very few people endorsed the idea that the land empires should be uh, dismantled. And was there a certain amount of um, feeling that if the British dismantled the Ottoman Emperor or the Austro-Hungarian Emperor, that the French or British emperors would eventually uh, be dim uh, diminished as well in time? Yeah, of course, there were there growing sort of nascent um, decolonization movements, which are very active at the time. Um, but one of the, the big um, paradoxical things about the, the this post-war period is that on the on the one hand you've got the dismantling of the land empires, but on the other hand, you have the expansion of the British and French empires, with the exception of Ireland, um, because many of the former 
um, Ottoman empires in the Middle East become mandates, uh, League of Nations mandates, uh, to be handled by the British and French, they gain control of large tracts of land uh, in the oil-rich Middle East. Um, and so on the one hand, you have an expansion of, of, of the British and French empires to their fullest extent. Um, and at the same time, you've got the, uh, the dismantling of the defeated empires um, that fought in the First World War. This is absolutely fantastic. And if you want to read more about this, please uh, go out and get Robert's book. It's called The Vanquished, Why the First World War Failed to End in 1917 to 1923. Uh, Robert's been a privilege talking to you. Where can people find your book? Oh, I think they can find it everywhere in the local bookshop, but also on Amazon if they can't find it in, in a local bookshop. Okay, that's great. I definitely hope our listeners will, will be uh, tuning into this and hopefully we'll be getting your book. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. As you can appreciate, it takes a huge amount of effort and time and organisation to put something like this together. This festival, running over two and a half weeks in the fourth year, needs a curator. So I was privileged to meet the curator of this event. Now going to talk to you about the preparation and effort put into a festival like this. No, I'm in uh, the Printworks in Dublin Castle here, and I'm with one of the chief organisers, Bert. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners down in Clonakilty? I would indeed, yeah. I'm Bert Wright. I'm the events curator of the Dublin Festival of History, and uh, we're in our fourth year this year. And uh, we're growing every year, and as you can see from the crowd we had this morning, it's a massively popular event, even during a bus strike. We're a nice crowd for our first uh, event this morning. I can testify to that as a witness being here. It was very well crowded. Bert, that's a lovely brogue you have. You're not a local Dublin man. No, indeed, I'm from Edinburgh, but uh, I did live in Cork for three years in the 80s. I was the first manager of Waterstones in Patrick Street, so I know Cork well, and I'll sing you a couple of verses of the banks if you... Amy. <laughs> well, hold on, we want to hold on to our listeners just a bit longer, Bert, but, that, but that's great, a little bit of history there for us. So, Bert, um, how do you go about um, inviting guests over, and who do, who do you have in this year's festival? Some of the highlights. The highlights, possibly, well, I mean, I go through the publisher's catalogues to see who has new books, and uh, try to find out, you know, who's available to come and visit us, and it's not always pushing at an open door, but there's a great willingness to get on the behalf of publishers to get their um, their authors out into the in before an audience so they love it it's not um, you know it's a labor of love but this year we've got tomorrow we've got John Bowman the RT uh, who's written uh, an excellent book called uh, Ireland an autobiography and he's uh, going to be talking to Paddy Gagan who does the talking history show that should be great tomorrow tomorrow eve uh, no this evening we've got a great event called Hillsborough the truth uh, which is about the you know the the catastrophe at Hillsborough and we have Paul Howard who is Russell Carroll Kelly he's a big Liverpool fan he's going to be doing the the conducting the interview but the two people who he's speaking to are a gentleman called Adrian Tempany who was a, a young fella who was caught in the Leppings Lane end and survived to tell the tale he's written a book about it and the other fella who's a remarkable man called Phil Scratton he was on the panel he's written uh, the original book about Hillsborough and only l- Thursday night he was granted the freedom of Liverpool for his services so he's a people's hero in Liverpool uh, so that's going to be a great event tonight but there's lots of great stuff on next is uh, Operation Thunderbolt which is about the raid on Entebbe, Saul David a young English historian uh, and we've got a Dutch historian Frank de Cotter talking about Chairman Mao and the Cultural Revolution so 
you know, the range of subjects that we talk about is um, one of the things people seem to appreciate. You know, you go from World War One to football to Chairman Mao to Stalin and Hitler. It, it's all happening. And it's not just all happening here in Dublin Castle. Um, it's throughout Dublin, Bert, isn't that right? It is. The core festival is the, the, are the Dublin Castle events, but uh, there's a fringe, as we talk about, which lasts longer, and that's conducted in public libraries, and there's great stuff to be had there. They're all free, so people love the... Dublin Festival of History. And anyone who's listening into this now, just realise that this isn't happening this weekend. It runs for a wee bit longer than this weekend, isn't that right, Bert? I only look after the the core programme here in Dublin Castle, but I think it goes on until October. There's lots of stuff happening in local libraries, but uh, you can go onto the website at www.dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and check out what's happening, you know. And as I said, I'm up here this weekend, but if any of you do get, in, uh, get into that website, please do attend this festival. It's a fantastic one. Going four years now, Bert, isn't that right? Fourth year now, yeah. Sure. And how do you get your funding? It's all Dublin City uh, Libraries. Oh, fantastic. Fair Council play. Funding, yeah. So maybe we can get the Cork Libraries below to, to do something for us as well. Yes, indeed. Talk to my friend Paul Cusson down there in the City Libraries. who used to work for me in Watersons. He'll sort you. He'll get you a festival. We'll do that. Thanks a million, Bert. Lovely talking to you. You're welcome. Cheers. Now, as well as a a, a feast for the ear, it was a visual feast too. We were lucky enough when we reached Dublin Castle that there was a lot of people roaming around the place in period costume, selling books, promoting their own material. I caught up with one gentleman called James Langton, and he was with the Michael Collins 22 group, which uh, put on the period costume and go to events like this, and indeed schools, and they have stories to tell themselves. But why should I tell you this? Let James tell you himself. Here is James now speaking to me in between events. No, I'm standing here at Dublin Castle and I'm faced with a man who looks quite fearsome. He's carrying an old rifle. He might tell us what it is in a moment. He's got an ammunition belt and he's dressed in a period costume of 1916. So, who are you, James? My name is James Langton and I'm part of the um, history, uh, two history groups. Uh, one is uh, the Dublin Brigade Irish Volunteers History Group and the other is the Michael Collins 22 Society. And uh, what we do is we go around schools and places like this and uh, we dress up as volunteers and, as you can see, British soldiers, uh, telling both sides of the story of, of our troubling past. And um, we also bring these events. It adds a bit to, first of all, it adds a bit of pageantry to the exhibitions because we have uh, medals on display, guns, uniforms, all that type of stuff, you know. And we also take them into schools to, so the young people can see them and enjoy them. And, and I can testify to that. I mean, there's an array of things here. You, as you said, you've got medals, you've got weapons from the past, you've got people in different period costume. So you're all volunteers, are you? We're all, yeah, we're all volunteers. We do, we're, we're more historians, you know, than anything else. And we just love sharing the history with, with people, you know. And that's fantastic. You said you go around schools. Is it primary schools. or secondary schools? Uh, both. Both. We, we, we've been invited. We have to be invited in, do you know what I mean? But it's more promoting, promoting Irish history. Though, and uh, the children love it, you know. And it's fantastic, this Dublin uh, Festival of History. It's, it's a fourth year. Have you been going here for the whole four years yourselves? Yeah, we're going, we're, we're, I suppose we're all in all we're going the past five years, you know. The Collins Society has been gone a lot longer than that. But uh, we take care of Michael Collins' grave. I'm sure the car people would like to know that. We take care of his grave every week. Throughout the year, we, it's just to do the flowers on it. You've just made a whole host of fans down in Cork, so we're delighted. It was lovely chatting to James. Thanks Okay, absolutely. Have a great day. I'm finally going to finish with another uh, interview. Saul David from the University of Buckingham uh, was promoting and lecturing about his book Operation Thunderbolt Flight 139. 
fascinating lecture where he talks about the 1976 Israeli Special Forces carrying out a daring raid to free more than 100 Israeli, French and US hostages held by Germans and Palestinian terrorists in Uganda. He's going to talk to you about it now and even the fact that this book is catching Hollywood's eye. Enjoy it. Now, Clonline uh, Ristlers, I, I have a real special treat. I'm privileged to actually be t- speaking with Saul David, author of Operation Thunderbolt. Um, Mr. David, he was only new to me when I came up to the festival this evening, but I must say to you, a fantastic, inspiring lecture. And um, you don't want to be listening to me. Here's Saul to tell you a little bit about his book. So Operation Thunderbolt is about the rescue at Entebbe, the legendary rescue at Entebbe in 1976. I was just about old enough to remember it. I was 10 years old at the time. I'm actually almost more interested in tennis uh, than terrorist doings at the time. I was watching the Wimbledon final between um, Bjorn Borg and Ili Nastasi, believe it or not, which was actually taking place while the operation was launched. Now, the rescue had come about because a, a plane had been hijacked. It was the 1970s and plane hijacking was pretty prevalent in those days. Uh, it was hijacked between Tel Aviv in Israel and Paris actually was hijacked just as the plane took off from Athens, which was the weak link in the armour of airport security at that time. They, they, the terrorists had come in on a transit plane and they'd literally been able to walk on this Air France plane with their weapons in their bags. Uh, they took it um, over quite quickly, of course, because the cabins weren't locked in those days, ordered it first to Benghazi, where they refuelled, of course, uh, the Benghazi, that is Libya, mm-hmm. of um, Colonel Gaddafi, who was sympathetic, shall we say, (laughs) and then on to another country where they were even more sympathetic, which was Uganda in Africa. And this, although the world didn't know it at the time, was all pre-planned. Idi Amin, the dictator of Uganda, had a deal with the terrorists, who were a combination of Palestinian, extreme Palestinian terrorists. uh, That is, they were at um, at, at, at the more extreme end of Palestinian terrorism. These were the... uh, popular front for the liberation of Palestine, or in fact a faction of that, that were pretty much the no-surrender guys of of the Middle East um, terrorist groups. They didn't want negotiations with Israel. They didn't want to create a a two-state solution. They wanted to see the back of Israel full stop. So they were pretty hard line. And they joined up with a German group uh, called Revolutionary Cells, extreme left-wing group, similar to Bader Meinhof, lots of contacts with the Bader Meinhof. And they w- were really anti-capitalist, anti-Zionist, um, extreme uh, socialist, anti-imperialist, uh, all those kind of buzzwords that meant something in the 70s and sound a bit quaint and old-fashioned, frankly, today. But anyway, they, they were idealists. And together, these two groups wanted to force Israel and a number of other countries to release an awful lot of hostages, uh, sorry, an awful lot of uh, fellow terrorists from various jails, mainly in Israel. And the denouement of the story was the rescue that was launched by Israeli special forces. And of course, the story is long and involved in how they got to the point where they thought they could carry, they thought that they might have a chance of succeeding. And the reasons why they did succeed are long and involved, and you really need to read the book. Um, but what was really captivating for me during the research of the of the story is how much more there was to find out 40 years ago it had taken place and you would have thought well you know surely in that time we know pretty much all there is to know particularly a story as famous as this but no there was an awful lot more to find out and in a nutshell i discovered how much closer the operation came to disaster and how it really hinged on the terrorists 
taking the decision, which frankly they were they would be unlikely to do today, to not kill all the hostages when they realized a rescue operation was being launched. That was the really shocking moment of realization for me. And in some ways, of course, it makes the story even more exciting. And it, and it doesn't make it less extraordinary what um, Israel tried to do, which is to save the lives of an awful lot of people who are under threat. Um, but it makes it more real in some ways, I think, which is that, yes, we think we like to think there are these specially trained super supermen out there who can somehow protect us. But, you know, what the jobs they have to do are very dangerous and a lot can go wrong. And a lot did go wrong. And so you mentioned that this is a famous or infamous event. Why has mainstream history largely forgotten or ignored this in recent times, you think, until your book? Well, it's, it's very interesting because it was such a major news event in 1976 not only did you have a lot of journalists uh, covering it and uh, interviewing a lot of the hostages when they got back and, and a few books came out very quickly, a kind of real mishmash of, of interviews and, and a bit of briefing from Israeli intelligence and, and uh, minist Ministry of Defense. So they got the bare bones of the story. And then also you had uh, three feature films within the space of a few months too. And I think there was a kind of sense that the story's out there, that it, it's, it's, the story's been done. But you will know as a fellow historian that actually you need, a, a, you need time for the story to breathe. You need an opportunity for people who wouldn't have spoken at the time to then come out of the woodwork. And you need the opportunity for documents, be it personal accounts or more, more to the point, official documents, to get released. And they certainly aren't going to be released immediately when it involves... Uh, intelligence services, special forces, and a story, frankly, although it was, you know, very much told at the time as a wonderful um, uh, rescue, but a story that has lots of uh, light and shade to it. And there are elements of the story that, frankly, the Israeli state hoped would never come out. And, and they are chiefly uh, that it wasn't such a clean, perfectly organized operation as they led us to believe. And, you know, historians are often accused of perhaps uh, letting current times um, dictate what they're writing. Do you think anything that's going on in the Middle East or in Israeli politics had any influence over your writings? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we'd be mad not to be influenced in a way by, by, by current politics. I mean, as historians, and, you know, I, I always feel quite strongly that I'm asked to comment on current events very often when there's some link to something I've written about in the past. And I don't feel fully qualified to anticipate where we're going. Uh, but I do feel quite strongly that the stories even of the recent past need to be covered. And if there's a resonance, a current resonance, which is going to uh, create a, a, you know, an almost natural reservoir of interest, then that probably, maybe even on an unconscious level, will direct us towards certain subjects. And the terrorism of the 1970s, which has been... Um, or at least interest in it has seen a resurgence in recent years with films like Argo, um, with the uh, the crisis in Iran in 1979 for the Americans, 1979-1980. You, you now see that there's much more interest in, in terrorism in the 1970s. And I think that the contrast, frankly, I mean, the problems, the same problems that, that gave rise to a lot of the terrorism, particularly um, Palestinian terrorism in the 1970s are still with us. But you, you now have a very different form of terrorism and a very different type of threat. And in some ways, that makes the terrorism of the 1970s more nostalgic. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it encourages people to 
want to look back and read about it. But from a historian's point of view, as, as, uh, as I think we both know, now's the opportunity to do it because now the story has had time to breathe. There, yeah. there is information to discover after 40 years that wouldn't have been available Absolutely, before. Yeah, yeah. The sources, of course, are so important, things we couldn't have got hold of before. On a lighter note, any chance of making this into the next Argo? Well, uh, it, it's, um, it's very fortuitous that you ask that question because only recently uh, there's been lots and lots of discussions that the possibility that a film would be made. And only recently have I heard absolute confirmation that one is on the stocks. They have an expression in the film business, greenlit or not. And this project is now being greenlit. And I've seen the scripts and it's, uh, I have to say, it's for a feature film, which uh, based on a true event is a pretty good effort. What they've done, they, they have taken the reality of the story very seriously um they haven't broken too many uh rules of what actually happened they've created one or two fictional characters in the script but basically all the real people are there and a lot of the original conversations that happened are in the film so you know i i would give it how many stars out of uh, I, I would definitely give it four stars out of five in sticking close to historical uh, truth and as far as the drama is concerned well i'll let the you know people go and watch the film uh, judge for themselves but they're calling the film and tebby which is what i wanted to call the book it was the publishers who insisted on operation thunderbolt but frankly i always remember it as in tebby you know it's got the resonance of this location in the heart of africa how on earth did this terrorist situation which has started in Europe end up in the middle of Africa and, and how was it resolved I mean they, they, you know those are the extraordinary those are the questions that I asked myself how and why was it resolved the way the way it, it was and I think I hope the film will bring out a lot of that in a, in a very dramatic and exciting way and of course if you really want to get to the bottom of those answers please go out and buy Mr David's book it's a fantastic book Saul David Operation Thunderbolt he's here at the Dublin History Festival for, for this week and we were delighted to have him thank you very much thanks very much so Clonline listeners I hope you've enjoyed this very special feature we've had this week in the History Show it was a privilege and pleasure for me to be able to have access and speak to with, with Robert, uh, Saul and the organisers, of course. Uh, Brendan and, and, and Bernie were extremely kind to give me their time and have access to, to the lectures. And it was lovely to meet up some of the audience and others who made it a, such an eventful place and, and a, an event to be at. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you've any interest in, in what you've heard today, check out the books that they've been talking about. They are on sale now. And of course, if you want to contact the show or know anyone who wants to be interviewed or would like to be interviewed themselves, we always have a space with you on the Local History Show. Till next week, bye-bye. Sing for you a story of August 22 When in a place called Bailna Blood A soldier died for you His name was Michael Collins Of independence vein And Ireland's roll of honour will forever A gentle breeze of autumn From time to time I shower The gunmen lay in waiting in 
outside the ambush lay in wait till Ireland's sun was well within by then it was too late a hail of bullets fired upon the party down below the soldiers stop and they dismount they run into and fro amidst all the confusion Paul Michael he stepped out firing all around the man a fatal one rang out the firing seems to ease off his comrades look around They see a figure up the way He's lying on the ground As he lay upon the roadside Up to his side they run They kneel in prayer and deep despair For Ireland's fallen son Oh gallant Michael Collins, there's always sacrifice Our priceless freedom wasn't won, it's you that paid the price I thank you for that freedom, the cause for which you died I thank you for the courage and the strength and pride On the cross above your grave will blow the winds and rain To mingle with the teardrops that that fall upon your name Where you rest now is sacred I weekly visit there I place fresh flowers upon your grave I offer up a prayer From time to time the papers They often sing your praise They write about your struggle and the ending of your days And reading those old papers A headline it did say All Ireland she's in mourning for The soldier died today All Ireland she's in mourning for The soldier